Okay, everybody, welcome to this week's episode of Build Amazing Things Securely. I'm your host, Laura Belmain, and it is my absolute pleasure today to welcome our guest, Dr. Vaughan Shanks, the CEO and founder of Sidearm Technologies, but I'll let him introduce himself. He's going to be doing it much better than I can. And he's going to talk to us about something in the authentication space that we should all be a little bit excited about. So welcome, Vaughan. Thanks for having me on the show, Laura. Really appreciate it. Right. Vaughan, not a problem at all. I I am absolutely thrilled to be understanding about this new technology today. So, but before we get into that, I would love to hear about yourself. So who are you, Vaughan? What brings you here and what is it you do in the world? Well, uh, so first and foremost, I'm a software engineer. I've got a computer science background. I'm a builder of things. I've been doing this for a long time. I'm also, uh, should we say, an information security aficionado. I've been passionate about InfoSec since I read The Cuckoo's Egg uh, way back in the 1990s. And yeah, flash forward to today, I've worked in, uh, on the way, I worked in uh, the government space in, in the Australian Department of Defense and abroad, uh, and then worked for a Silicon Valley software vendor and started my own venture uh, a bit over five years ago from Sidearm Technologies. So I've been running this company um, since then. Wow, that's pretty exciting. Now, for those who are listening or watching who haven't come across The Cuckoo's Egg, it is a great book. Highly recommend if you want a vintage trip down memory lane of how hacking used to work. So it's lovely to have that brought up again. So you've had quite the adventure and it's awesome to meet somebody who's moved from the engineering space into the cybersecurity space. So tell us, Vaughan, what is the technology that you are excited about? What's the amazing thing that we should be doing? Well, today I'm excited about attribute-based access control or ABAC as it was known. All right. Okay. All right. So before we lose everyone at the start, can you explain, well, not like I'm five, because to be honest, five-year-olds have no attention span, but explain it to us. Vaughan, what is this and why should we be excited about it too? So there's a lot of talk about zero trust. And I realize I have to put a dollar in the swear jar for using that term. Absolutely. Uh, there is a lot of talk about that. And there's a lot of talk that, uh, that it, it's impossible and it's, it's an aspiration that no one can ever reach. And uh, I just want to say, I have seen it. And I saw it about 15 years ago when I was working in the public service for the Australian Department of Defense. And, uh, and that is just how they did things. And one of the ideas that was introduced along the way that I learned about and is only just starting to gain relevance is attribute-based access control. And so this is a really important part of, of, a, of a zero trust architecture because you need to not only enforce people's identity uh, when they connect to systems and you know, in between systems, but you then also need to figure out what are their authorizations. And so ABAC uh, is a, a, a very powerful and flexible and convenient system uh, that works very well in the government space. And, and I think it, it's got a lot of application in the private sector as well. And my interest in this is because we make a platform at Sidearm Technologies for security incident response or cyber response management, as we're calling it uh, these days. And one thing that has really struck me is that cyber response is, is a team sport. There's a lot of people that have a part to play. So talking about a security operations team, the teams that are adjacent to that, and then industry peers, regulators, and and other providers in the space. So so and that collaboration, right. yeah. 
This is pretty cool. Now, Vaughan, forgive me, but we're going to unpick a few bits here. So remembering our audience are software engineers of all shapes, sizes and forms. We're going to kind of let's give them the quick refresher that they need, the minimum viable knowledge, if you will, for what is zero trust. So we hear this term banded around a lot. You even suggested a swear jar for it, and I'm with you on that. So what's the simplest explanation you can give of that? Well, Let's let's put aside the marketing jargon for a second and go back to how it's defined by the United States government, who I think actually borrowed the idea from Google's Beyond Corp paper from must be like 12, 13 years ago. So what it is, it's a, it's a system by which we essentially have isolation between different components in, in a network or a, a, an IT infrastructure that minimizes the possibility of lateral movement of an attacker being able to exploit a foothold and move into other parts of a network. It also, I think, is a, a tip of the hat to the, the, the modern reality where we have people working from all over the world, often on mobile workstations or even mobile, mobile phones, and there is no perimeter anymore. There's no hard boundary of a firewall. And you know, we, we sit inside a, an office with our workstations plugged into the ethernet Really, the, the boundary uh, with all of the SaaS services we're using and, and the distribution of employees is very broad. And so Zero Trust has these six pillars. Uh, it's got identity, devices, applications, networks, infrastructure, and data. And it, it, it defines, it's a really a, a standard, very well defined with lots of documentation that defines how we secure these, uh, these objects uh, or these, these domains uh, with respect to enforcing identity and authorization and all that other good stuff, detection, monitoring, et cetera. Awesome. Cool. Now, for many of our audience, you haven't encountered that before. All these papers that Vaughan's referencing are freely available online. So we will try and pop some links in the comments so that if you do feel like going a bit deeper, you can. But let's get back to that incident response bit, Vaughan, because I'm intrigued. You like this area enough to be building a product in this space. Now, as somebody who's been silly enough to build a product, this is no mean feat. So what's got you excited about collaborative incident response and what sidearm doing that has you so focused on that mission? Yeah, what got me excited about it was I realized there was no, no real standards around, around how this is done. There are aspirations. So groups like NIST have defined best practice. Um, but in terms of how that's implemented, you know, back in, in 2017, when I started the company, it seemed to be uh, grab your favorite ticketing system of choice and, and good luck. You'll need to customize it a lot. <laughs> and, and one of the problems does, we see... Does everybody need to jeer everyone? Was there a lot of jeer in the mix? Oh, look, I'm, going to avoid naming, I'm going to avoid throwing any, any product yeah. names under the bus here, but that, that, is, that, certainly, that certainly comes up quite a lot. It's frequently used. And... You know, I think it is, it is actually, uh, it's, it's validating to see that people have actually thought about using a ticketing system of some kind. Even, we've even seen Excel spreadsheets being used for incident response at, shall we say, very large financial institutions because they just had nothing else to work with, but they've got a mental model of how they want this to work. Now, where it breaks down is when it comes to collaborating outside that immediate team of responders. So it, it's easy enough to record notes uh, individually. Um, if you're recording notes amongst a team of trusted insiders, there are ticketing platforms that can let you do that. Um, but then what do you do when you need to invite, say, contractors like a, a managed service who are doing tier one monitoring for you 
or, or, you know, to, I guess, working more in your domain, Laura, when you have uh, developers who are the only people that know how to secure their own products, that they know there's an issue, they know there's, there's a, a, you know, a, a DevSecOps call to action that they need to fix this issue in a hurry, um, and they need partial visibility of what the security team is doing, but not everything. You don't want to invite them mm-hmm. onto your team platform and have them see literally all the data. And so what I no, realized... And, and to be honest, as an engineer born, I don't think I want to see all that data. I've, I've, you know, I've read enough security papers now to know that nothing good will come. So you're talking about these kind of stakeholders coming in. Sorry to have interrupted you there, but I want to make sure that we really get those details while we're talking about that part. So we've got engineers come in, and I love to hear that we have a key part to play in instant response, that, you know, it is our world too, which for many of our audience, that might not be something you've been around or been aware of. So uh, you've got tier one people, you have service providers, and this collaboration then is really, really important. What kinds of data are you sharing? Yeah, so the, the name of the game here is, is collaboration at different levels of trust and expertise. So, a, you know, for example, a software developer might need to know or a DevOps person might need to know when we first became aware of this incident, how were we notified that the software had a bug? You know, it could be a log4j type of situation. We, we found what looks like malicious traffic and, you know, there is code executing on your host right now your application is being exploited. DevSecOps people need to know the, the, the timeline of events. They need to be able to see the evidence of, of, of what's, what's happening right now so that they can react with the appropriate level of urgency and they can focus their effort on, on damage control and then on containment um, going forward. And I think this is the reason this is challenging is because you don't want those people to be also looking at your insider threat cases, which might be stored in the same ticketing system, which they have no business looking at. So in the government, we call this need to know. And it's balancing that need to know with the need to share. Mm. Is there a certain size organization, do you think, Vaughan, that has more of this need to know division? So, you know, we, we build software in tiny teams and large organizations and large government departments. Is it universally true that there's that division or is it something you grow into? Like a lot of these technologies, I think it starts with a really big, sophisticated, well-resourced organization. So, you know, top tier banks, top tier telcos, very obvious need to collaborate between parts of the organization and, and to be able to move at speed and, and not spill sensitive data. I think what's happening though is security is being democratized. So we're seeing security permeating lower and lower down into smaller and smaller organizations and, and security practices now are, I would say in, in the light of recent events, certainly here in Australia, are, are good security practices are known by many people you could bump into on the street. So I think being able to, to react to a security incident, like any other sort of incident, being able to be aware of the risk and manage the risk, I think is, is going to become more and more a part of the everyday for DevOps teams. Yeah, absolutely. It does sound like it. So this comes back to our technology of choice, Vaughan. Tell us what the link is. How do we you know, embrace incident response and be part of this as part of the solution um, and use this technology? How is that technology going to help us? All right, so most people will have heard of role-based security. And that's basically where uh, when you log in, the system you log into is aware of what your job role is. And based on that, it lets you do certain things and not do certain other things. ABAC is, so, so 
So role-based access control is, you can think of it as a one-dimensional access control system where you have a job role and your job role lets you do things. ABAC um, attribute-based access control is multi-dimensional. So job role might be one of um, the attributes associated with your, uh, with your user profile. Uh, there might be an attribute that says what nationality you are. And in government, this is very important because we're, we're sharing data across international boundaries with our, our partners. Uh, we might even have foreign people working alongside us in the office. And in government, there's some data you just can't show them, but you want to collaborate and be as open as you can be. Uh, there could be attributes to do with what organization you work for. So, you know, whether you're an internal member of the organization that is, that is managing this risk or you're an external contractor or retainer that's helping out. And so what you're doing is you're, when a person logs in, you're assigning these attributes to them based on who they are, maybe also where they're logging in from, what time of day mm -hmm. it is, you might change their attributes. And then you have basically a policy engine that makes split second decisions in real time about what objects they're allowed to discover, read, write, and update. Um, and that's really basically- cool. I, I love it. So, you know, thinking, yeah, with my data nerd hat on, and like most engineers, we, that sounds to me like there's an, really an infinite set of these attributes that you could associate with an individual or an account or an entity. And the flexibility of that sounds great. That sounds like you can make really fine-grained decisions. So what's the catch, Vaughan? Why isn't this everywhere? Why has it taken so long to adopt? I think the catch is that uh, step one is you have to put access control lists on objects. And if, if you have a, a platform where you haven't done that, retrofitting that can be quite difficult. Uh, it's the sort of thing you want to bake in from the get-go and have, have a way to label every object with, uh, with, with at least an access control list. You can change it later, but you've got to have that, uh, that affordance built in. And the other part is I think it's it is at first blush more complex. I mean, it's very easy to say, I am an admin. That is to say, I'm an Australian, I'm an admin, I am, you know, work for organization ABC and, uh, you know, I'm coming from, from this particular network right now. How you uh, do those, those combinatorics to figure out uh, what, ac what access I have to what objects is obviously, you know, that's, that's the algorithm that it's the secret source of ABAC. And, and at first blush, it can seem like that's a lot more difficult than just saying, I'm an admin, give me super, super user access to everything. I think though, when you start getting into more nuanced situations, like, okay, I work at a multinational company, we've had a data spill, it pertains to users in Europe. And, you know, as like people who are not European um, should not be looking at this data because we don't want to have a second data spill. We don't want our outsource provider to look at it. Um, and we have to make sure the data doesn't leave uh, leave Europe. We want to be able to share the sensitive data with those people who need to know. And by the way, we're going to bring in this, uh, this other organization who are going to collaborate with us on the solution. And when you start breaking it down into, well, how many roles do we need to represent a larger organization with lots of relationships? And think of a Venn diagram you know, and when you have three circles on a Venn diagram, you've got effectively, what is it, like seven regions that you can, you can define. Now, if you throw a whole lot of circles onto that Venn diagram, each one of those has to become a role. It, it starts to get really out of hand quickly. So, so this is where ABAC scales a lot better than RBAC.
Mm, now, like once upon a time, I had a very misguided period on, in a payments company, and we had a very fine grain permission system. So every single function had multiple layers of controls on it. Now, back then, I was asked to go and test it. So go and test all of the different combinations of these fine base controls. Has that space gotten any easier? How would you, you know, as an engineer, make sure that you're really testing out all of the permutations of those attributes? Or is that a problem that doesn't really apply to ABAC? I really, I think there's two two problems there to unpack. The first one is, uh, does the ABAC policy engine make correct decisions? And uh, that, that means running a battery of tests that try different combinations and just checking that it can handle the different situations where an access control list has you know, say, say no attributes from a particular category in it, or it's got, you know, three different attributes and, and how those are combined and making sure you get the answer you expect. From a point of view of an organization, uh, checking their configuration of ABAC, um, that really comes down to how well you can understand the rule sets and uh, whether you're willing to, you know, for example, run a, a, a QA environment. If, if you had, I mean, for simple cases, you wouldn't need to do this. It would be, it'll just work the way it's intended but for maybe a more complex situation you might want to QA at first and and do a few dry runs with some some dummy users to make sure you can see what you can see mm. this sounds really interesting to me i know many of us have built authentication authorization systems before and um, this definitely sounds like uh, it has a lot more potential for being more dynamic than perhaps we have been able to be in the past. So talk me through how this is helping in Sidearm. So you said that you needed, you had a need to know basis on your information. How is this being applied? So really it starts becoming relevant as soon as you, well, within a, within a security operations team, you might have basically different permissions depending on seniority. But as soon as you go outside that team, you, you, need, you need to start thinking about the other dimensions of the model. And so uh, one that comes up almost immediately is what organization a person works for. So if you have a different organization on the stack, maybe they're a, a service provider, uh, they might have a limited view. They might be doing a tier one creation of, of new cases and, and you know, recording basic information, gathering context. Um, but the response is, is access control differently because they, they actually don't need to know that. They don't need to know what our tradecraft is. Another consideration here is you can have attributes that pertain to users who, or that, that would potentially pertain to users who will never actually even get an account on your platform. And here I'm talking about regulators. So if you want to filter the information that gets put into a report and then sent off the platform to someone who needs to maintain a level of trust that you're doing things in a responsible way, you may not want to include every single bit of information that you know about a situation. You just want to stick to the things that they need to know to see you're doing the right things. And so you can have these attributes that pertain to organizations that are not even people on your system. Um, so there's a couple of examples. Others, yeah, working with DevOps teams, uh, legal, you know, if it's inside a threat, there's usually an HR angle to it. HR need to have a view on it, but you don't want to overload them with information. Uh, if you have a DFIR service on retainer, uh, you don't want them to have them to have access That's to every single Oh, sorry, digital forensics and incident <laughs> response. So this is when you've had a really nasty incident and your your small security operation operations team just don't have the resources to deal with it. 
and you bring in specialist forensic experts, and there's a number of firms that do this, you want to give them that access to your system so they can have the same context as the incident responders in your, in your team. You want that tight collaboration loop. What you don't want is to open the whole system up so they can see your entire history because they just don't need that information. Awesome. I can see so much potential here. And it sounds like your platform, Sidearm, is using these technologies to really control what could be a very delicate data situation. So is there any risk with this that we're not aware of? That, you know, is there any way this could go horribly wrong, Vaughan? Yeah, I guess like any powerful tool, um, if it's not understood well, and if, uh, if you're making decisions about data labeling or, or attribute, uh, attribute granting to, to users, you can expose the wrong data. It's, it's entirely possible. But I think you'd find that with any access control situation. Um, I suppose for those who are trying to build this technology, um, and I've built this technology now two or three times over in different roles across my career, the, the, there are some compute challenges with this. There is, uh, there's, it, it's, it's an extra layer of computing uh, that, that has to be taken into account and you, you'll run into scale problems very quickly if, if you don't have a, a well-thought-out schema and some efficient algorithms. That's really good advice, Vaughan. And I know that our audience, all of us as engineers, we have that tendency to go, how hard could this be? I'll just build one. And it's always nice to know in advance where there might be some dragons. So if we kind of just bring this to its kind of gentle conclusion, what types of organizations? So if you were going to, you know, make some recommendations to folks who are, you know, maybe starting out in this incident response space and you know, they're facing some of these difficulties you're talking about and sharing these bits of information that could be very sensitive with these third parties or these interested parties who don't need the full picture. Who, what type of organization, what type of team should be looking at this? And what are your recommended first steps to kind of take a first step into instant response? I would say um, government organizations uh, resonate the strongest with this technology because chances are they're, they're already using this in some guise internally already, even if they don't call it attribute-based access control. So if you've ever seen classified documents, uh, they effectively use a kind of ABAC that you know even a, a junior NCO can understand. You, you see the, the classification on the document, you know straight away what it means, who's allowed to see it, who's not. Uh, so governments get this straight away. I'd say any any organization that's in an industry that's government regulated and the list is growing is going to need to understand how to control sensitive information and to, to conform to the, the requirements of regulators, which often means notifications and sharing and being able to do, do all of that. I'd say the third category is, is managed security service providers or, or even managed service providers who have a need to implement multi-tenancy and you know if you've got a, a a platform that lets you segregate data based on the organization it's from uh, then that also is you know is a very a very useful use case for ABAC and and then giving the different people that are providing services you know different access to subsets of those organizations based on you know their different trust parameters 
Awesome. Well, you know, you're hearing it here from the person who's done it a few times over in their career. So, you know, if you're in that government space, if you are in a multi-tenancy environment now, I know many of you are, even if you won't admit it out loud, then this could be really powerful for you and what you're doing. But as Warren was saying, watch out for those scaling issues, uh, because we all know that a scaling problem you don't spot before you deploy can be a headache and an out of hours a triage when you least want it. So Vaughan, if you were to do a call to action off the back of this, we've really enjoyed chatting through your attribute-based access control, AVAC, today, and why you think it is an amazing technology that's going to help us all. And I agree, your points were very strong. So what's our call to action today? What would you like us to all do off the back of this? And how can we learn more about your work and what you're trying to build in the world? Okay, so I would say, uh, you know, just stepping back a little bit to where the conversation started, if you've heard that zero trust is a marketing term and you're cynical about it, I'd say take another look. Look for government documentation about it because the information is out there and it's very specific about what zero trust looks like. And, and I think that that then is naturally will, will motivate you to, to understand better what kinds of authorization controls you can put in place. And I'd encourage you to consider ABAC because I think it's really important that we share this idea and, and popularize it. To find out more about what Sidearm does, you can see our website. Sidearm is spelled dot com, and, and we're doing a 30-day no-cost trials for people who are running a security operations team. Uh, you can take the product for a spin and have a look at ABAC for yourself. Awesome. Now, I know there's a lot of engineers out there who love to play with things, so I'm sure that some of them will be checking that out. Now, as somebody myself who used to work in a government environment, I know that when we say go read a government document, it can seem a little bit daunting, but I promise you there's a lot of value in there, and sometimes we underrate things that come from the government space that, you know, they can be a little bit behind. Sometimes they're just a bit secretive and they're very far ahead. So that's some really great advice, Vaughan. Really love that, and I hope that um, the folks listening at home can start to dabble in this technology, see if it applies to their world, and maybe even think about where their world touches an incident response. So what they're going to do when bad things happen. Um, thank you so much for your time today, Vaughan. It's been a pleasure to chat with you. Thanks for having me, Laura. An absolute pleasure. Build Amazing Things Securely is sponsored by SafeStack. Train your development team so that all software is secure software.